0: So we took a short break, and now we're back into the Gospel of Matthew. And if um, you've been with us for some time, you know this has been coming. We're sort of in the last leg of it, the last few chapters of a very long journey through it. If you're new, or just jumping in with us. We've been going through a book of the Bible called Matthew, and we've been doing it for quite some time. A little bit of important review information. Matthew is a biography. It's a biography of the life of Jesus. And it Of course, since it's a biography, starts with like a genealogy, the Christmas story. Then it takes us to Jesus' adult life, his ministry, primarily dealing with miracles and teachings in Northern Galilee. And then it shifts and Jesus turns to Jerusalem. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the crowds are gathered. They're saying, Hosanna, this is the son of David. And there's this excitement and intensity building. Jesus, however, clearly is is making profound claims and statements, and this ultimately makes the religious establishment and elite of his day turn on him, and they plot to kill him. And so where we're gonna pick up today is sort of right in the moments of his betrayal, his arrest, and sort of some of the aftermath dealing with that. So on the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus says this to his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Pretty, pretty famous scene, Jesus saying, they're gonna strike the shepherd and you guys are gonna scatter. And Peter, who's one of the people we're gonna be looking at today, is like, no, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Now, it's important to note that um, Peter isn't the only one who makes this claim. Look, at after that it says, and all the disciples said the same. They're all promising, we're gonna be with you at your side even if we have to die. Now, this is an important setup because what we're going to see today is we're going to see two people who share in a very similar situation, but even though they share in this similar situation, they're both going to take different paths subsequent to the situation. And one of the roads will lead to life, one of them will lead to death. Nevertheless, Peter leads kind of the group of the disciples in his promise and proclamation to be at Jesus' side. Shortly after, a large crowd comes to arrest Jesus, and Matthew records this. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So you see very quickly, these verses are not too far apart from each other. We promise we will never leave your side, even if we have to die. Then Jesus is arrested, and what's the last line? Then all the disciples left him and fled. How fickle we can be with our promises, right? Well, there's, there's extra nuance that's needed here. Then those who have seen Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance. This is interesting because in one sense, all the disciples flee, but again, there's this added nuance, this added detail that Peter is at least following from a distance. Maybe not right by his side like he promised, but he's following from a distance. And what I want to do is focus a little bit on Peter at this moment and review some of the critical moments in his life. Now, as we review these critical moments in his life, I want you to to picture the scene, like picture the moment, picture the event in your mind, because the scripture is giving you images in each one of these important scenes in the life of Peter. And these images will help paint a beautiful picture if you allow all the images to do what they're doing. So three critical moments in the life of Peter. The first is when Jesus first called him. The setting is the sea the Sea of Galilee. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So the first call of Peter was done where? At the sea. You need a picture Jesus on the shore, facing the sea, and he calls out to them, follow me, and I am going to make you fishers of men. And the text goes on and says that immediately they drop their nets and follow him. And the dropping of the nets is sort of symbolic in that the fishing nets, that's their vocation, their livelihood, and their life. So they're leaving their vocation, their livelihood, and their life to follow Jesus. Think of this like um, this first scene where the call to discipleship is like um, the first first time you met, if you're married, like your, your first time you met your spouse or the first date, it's like this is where our story begins, at the sea. Jesus on the shore calling out to Peter, come follow me. The second important scene we need to look at deals with the moment Peter walks on water. The disciples are out in a boat in the Sea of Galilee and it says, in the fourth watch of the night. Now, uh, the fourth watch of the night is is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So we're meant to picture the end of night. It's the end of night, and if you're in the dark on a sea in the ancient world, you're waiting for the sun to rise, like the darkness. You don't like that. You want the sun to rise. It's the fourth watch. It's towards the end of the night. And then they see him walking on the sea. Second line. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, oftentimes at this point, Peter gets a bad rap. Because it's like, Jesus is walking on water, you're seeing, beholding the miracle, and you get out and you're actually walking on water, and Jesus is saying, come to me, follow me, and for whatever reason, you're overwhelmed with fear, he begins to doubt and he begins to sink. It's like, oh, he's, he's full of doubt, he's full of fear. But here's the thing, no one else got out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat. All the other disciples stayed in. So it's very easy for us to look down and like, oh, he shouldn't have doubted, like, we probably wouldn't have got out of the boat. We're more like the 11 than the one here. And also, one of the interesting things is when Jesus says, oh you of little faith, why do you doubt? A lot of our understanding of that statement is influenced, not in the actual text and writing recorded, but in our own understanding of the character of God. So let me explain what I mean. For the most part, when I hear this passage talked about, and I hear people talk about it, we picture Jesus saying something like, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Like, you doubted, you were afraid, and Jesus is, is he's, he's mad, he's angry. That's certainly the case. It could be possible, it's certainly possible that that's the case. But he could have said that in a number of ways. He could have said it like in an angry tone. He could have done like uh, in, the, in all the Jesus movies from decades ago, for those of you who know those, like, most of those Jesus are depicted as like flat, like no emotion, so it's, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Um, but it's also possible that Jesus could have reached out and grabbed Peter and said, why, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Trust me, like, what is going on? So you see, all you have is a line recorded, but oftentimes our own understanding of the character of God colors the text. It influences our understanding of what's taking place. Christ doesn't want Peter to fail. God is for his people, not against him. He's not going, "Oh, I knew you would sink." Ah, what's wrong with you? God is for him. He's not against him. He wants him to succeed. And so it's very interesting how sometimes our own understanding of the character of God will influence our interpretation of the passage. All we know is that after his failure, what does Christ do? He reaches out his hand and he grabs him. Get into the boat. He saves him. He saves him. In the midst of his fear and doubt and lack of trust, Christ saves Peter. The third scene, important scene in the life of Peter, deals with Jesus taking the disciples to a location called Caesarea Philippi. And in that, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, our key character today, replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, um, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and Christ comes from the Hebrew word, uh, Christ, it's from the Greek word Christos and the Hebrew word Mashiach, it's the Messiah. You have to understand, Peter's whole life, he was taught to patiently await the coming of the Messiah. He's hoped that the Messiah would come his whole life. His dad has hoped that the Messiah would come for his whole life. His dad's dad has been waiting for his whole life for the Messiah to come. And so when Peter declares this of Jesus, he said, you're it. This is who we've hoped for. My father, my father's fathers, we've been waiting for you. All of our hopes and dreams rest in you. You are the one that will deliver us. So it's a big claim. Another important note in this, and I'm going to be honest, I just think I saw this first service. Like as I was going through it, it was, it was weird. It was like, I'm reading, I'm going, okay, hold on. Let me think for a second. There could be something here. And I think there is something here. Um, for those of you who were here a long time ago, we did a series through the book of Jonah. And at the end of that series, we, we walk through the parallels between Peter and Jonah. Peter's called Peter, son of Jonah, because his dad's named Jonah, so he's literally, bar means son, he's literally Peter, the son of Jonah. But also what the scriptures do is they, they have the character of Peter and the character of Jonah running parallel with each other. And you're going to see in all kinds of ways how they're, like, they're, they're very similar in what happens to them, what they do, how they respond to certain situations. And so I just want to note that there is a mention here of Peter being the son of Jonah. We'll come back to that later. Now, um, let's review these scenes. Peter um, is called at sea, at the shore. Jesus says, follow me. Peter cries out in his doubt and his fear and begins to sink into the depths of the sea to die. And Jesus reached down, gives him his hands, and pulls him up. Peter turns to Jesus and says, You are the Christ, you are the Son of the, the living God. And now, Jesus is arrested, and all the disciples scatter. They all run for their lives. But there is one who is following Jesus at a distance. And just like it's very easy to look down at Peter for sinking in the water because of his doubt, it's very easy to look at Peter and be like, you promised to never leave Jesus' side, and you've already done it. At least he's following Jesus from a distance. At least he's there ever so imperfectly, but he's still there. And This is where it picks up in Matthew. Peter makes it into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. Jesus said all of this would happen. He denies him three times, and then the symbol of the betrayal, this rooster crowing, and you see just Peter's kind of like absolute failure. Now, there's a lot going on here, but there's a whole lot more going on here when we allow the other gospel accounts to fill in some of the details. So as we mentioned, Matthew is a biography of the life of Jesus, but the New Testament in the Bible has a total of four biographies of the life of Jesus. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when you look at the other biographies of the life of Jesus, when they record this scene, they give you some extra details, and they're fascinating, they add a whole lot. Listen to what John adds in his biography of the life of Jesus. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So now there's another layer. There's actually another disciple that's somewhat following from a distance. Now, we don't know exactly who this person is, the majority of people think this is John, and that's probably the case, but there's others who would say, this is just some disciple, it's not a part of the 12. The other, the other um, part of the 12, the other 11 disciples, they, they, they ran, so it's probably just some other follower, not one of the 12. There are some people who even make an argument that this other disciple is Judas, because Judas came with a crowd to betray Jesus. Maybe he's on his way to the courtyard of the, the high priest Caiaphas too. Even though there's the the debate, when you put kind of the pieces together, it's likely that this is John. And John is there because for some reason, we don't know like how or how the relationships work, but he knows some people in the courtyard of the high priest. So basically, he's got connections. He's got like hookups, like his second cousin works there. Hey, we're trying to get in, man. You're going to let us in? Oh, come on. You know I can't let. Hey, we're family, man. Let me in. Um... And so there's this sort of hookup thing going on, like, let us in, and they get in, Peter and likely John. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are not one of this, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Remember now, at each one of these scenes, we want to slow down and and picture what's going on. Picture it. Peter is standing in front of a charcoal fire. It's cold. It's nighttime. And as he's standing in front of this charcoal fire, keeping warm, that is the moment where he denies Jesus. So you got to get these images together. It's nighttime. It's dark. It's cold. There's a charcoal fire, and at that location... Peter denies Jesus. There's another piece of information that the Gospel of Luke, the biography that Luke gives us. And this one is hauntingly tragic, hauntingly tragic. The moment of the betraying, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Same, same as the other Gospels, right? Listen to this detail. And the Lord turned. And looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we don't know exactly how this happened and exactly where they were positioned in the courtyard of the high priest, but we know this: that Peter has, he's in eyesight of Jesus. Now maybe it's because it's just it's 30 feet over here and he's close and he can watch or maybe they're, they're taking Jesus from one point of interrogation and they're moving him to another location in the courtyard and as he's walking by, Peter denies him, the rooster crows and at that moment, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. We don't know how it happens, but we know this. At the moment of Peter, it's Peter's betrayal The Lord himself makes eye contact with them. Can you imagine what that look felt like? Can you imagine how haunting that look was? It reminds me of, you know, um, sometimes with children, um, they've done something wrong and they're trying to hide it and then there's a moment where they know that you know, and you kind of make eye contact, and you know, a little tear starts to form, and maybe the, little, the lip starts to quiver. It's this overwhelming feeling for a child. Picture something like that, but times a thousand, times 10,000, times a million. Peter said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be by your side, even if I have to die. And then, I promise, I do not know this man. May curses fall upon me. I do not know this man. Rooster crows, and the eyes of Jesus lock with yours. And what is Peter's response? He leaves, and he weeps bitterly. He is a grown man, a strong, tough, grown man, in the ancient world. And he is weeping bitterly. The sense of failure and sin. And I, I've let down the one who I swore allegiance to. It's too much. He leaves and he weeps bitterly. Peter betrays Jesus to his face. Now there's another person in our story. Another person who betrays Jesus to his face. And that was Judas. Who brought the crowds and he walks up to Jesus and he betrays him with a kiss. Matthew 27, three through four says this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, this is interesting. It says that when he saw that Jesus was condemned. Now, we don't know if that means... Like he literally saw, he was there. Maybe he was that other disciple or maybe he was with some of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and so he was in the courtyard or maybe it says he saw, but he, he, it's, it's like a way of saying he got updated, he found out that Jesus was condemned. Nevertheless, in some sense, Judas finds out that Jesus was condemned. And then it gives us these words that he wants to bring back the 30 pieces of silver, the amount that he sold Jesus out for, Back to the priest and the elders and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, when you look at that phrase, it almost sounds as if Judas is is like repenting. I've sinned against innocent blood. And if you just look at that line, it can sure sound like that. But what you need to know is that the whole of scripture and the rest of the New Testament will never look at Judas in a positive light. It doesn't look back at this event and say, "Oh, and then this is where Judas realized what he did was wrong and he turned to the Lord." It just says that in some sense Judas's plan is not working out the way he thought it would. Things aren't going the way he thought it would. And because of that, he's like, "I don't want this money." But here's the thing. You have two betrayers, and they both betrayed Jesus to his faith to his face and the question is how will you respond to that there's always two roads before us there's a road that leads to life and a road that leads to death there's a road that leads towards the Lord and there's a road that leads away from the Lord whatever's going on with Judas whatever his motivation is he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he tries to give it back to the chief priests and the elders and they say what is it to us see to it yourself they don't want the money they don't care And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. It's this tragic story. And again, we don't know all that's going on with Judas, all the details. But rather than running to the Lord, he runs away. He goes the other direction. He leaves the temple, the house of his God, and runs in the opposite direction and kills himself. If you started reading the Gospels, there's no way you thought the story would go, go, go down like this. You start, and you're in Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus is teaching, there's miracles, all these good things are happening. You're not predicting that at the end of the story, Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will betray Jesus. Jesus will be tortured and crucified. Like, that's not how the story is supposed to go. No one sees this coming. No one saw this coming. So let's get back to Peter. What happens to Peter? He's overwhelmed. It says he weeps bitterly. He is overwhelmed with guilt and shame. He is overwhelmed with his failure. He's the one who said, even if I have to die, I will be by your side. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm willing to lay down my life and in a few short moments he goes from I'm willing to die for you to denying three times and then the look. The eye contact. So you gotta put yourself in Peter's shoes. This is overwhelming shame and guilt and failure. It's There's no way I could come back from this. There's no way God can forgive this. You feel the weight of Failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? When your failures are so heavy upon your back, you say, there's no way I could come back from this. There's no way. I've crossed a line. I've done something so wrong. God cannot forgive this. God will not forgive this. Forgive this. There's a line, and I crossed, or maybe you didn't cross a specific line, but you you did something again and again and again. And eventually, you start telling yourself things like, Lord, I'm never going to do this behavior again. I'm never going to do that again. I promise that act, that's the last time I will do it. I give you my word, I promise. And then the next day, you're doing the very things you swore you would not do. Have you been there? Are you there today? when the overwhelming sense of failure is upon your shoulders. He looked you in the eyes and you denied him to his face. That's where Peter's at. So what happens to Peter? What happens to Peter? Well, after the murder of Jesus, Jesus goes back, uh, Peter goes back to fishing. And again, it's really easy to look down upon Peter like, oh, you promised all this stuff and now you're going back to Galilee and being a, fisher, a fisherman. But you've got to again look closely at the text because Jesus hinted to his disciples that he would be betrayed and then after that he said, wait for me in Galilee. So again, it's really easy to look down at Peter. Man, he, he, he begins to sink in the water. He's following at a distance. He just goes back to fishing. You know, sometimes it's better to follow at a distance than not follow at all. And some of you might be here today in that position. A lot of fear, a lot of doubt, a lot of skepticism. You're following at a distance. Better to follow at a distance than not at all. Now, Peter goes back to fishing, and this is where we find him. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. So um, you have to picture the scene. Put, put the image in, in your head. They're going to go fishing, and they end up fishing the whole night, and they catch nothing. So... See Peter, he's out on his boat, he's got his fishing net, he's working, he's trying to catch fish, he's catching nothing. And right now you see Peter, he's lowly, he's humble, he's defeated. The tragic events are all still too fresh in his mind. And maybe as he's fishing and he's catching nothing, he looks to the shore and he he remembers it was right over there that Jesus first called me. Right there, Jesus said, put down your nets, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He said, follow me. And I followed him, it was right there at that location. And then maybe he also remembers the night he walked on water and he, and he turns to the side and he goes, over off in that direction, that's where I put my feet on the water and I began to sink, I began to sink. I so wanted to get to Jesus. It wasn't because I didn't want him, I wanted to get to him, but my fears, my doubts were too great and I sank. But that's where my Lord gave me his hand and he picked me up out of the waters. He saved me right there. He called me right there, and he saved me right there. And then you picture the, the setting. Where are we at? We're at the sea. It's nighttime. They've been fishing the whole night, and they're not catching anything, which means they've been fishing the whole night. We're almost at the morning, we're almost at dawn. John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He reveals who Jesus is. And then he says, this word was life, and his life was the light of men, and that the darkness would not be able to overcome or overpower the light that this Jesus brings. And so Peter, at the, the precise location of his call and his failure, is not even catching fish. He was supposed to be a fisher of men, and he can't even be a fisher of fish. And then, towards the end of the night, true light of true light appears. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Like, do you guys understand how beautiful this is? Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and and you will find some. And so with the rising of the sun, you have Jesus appearing. And then listen to his language. He says, children, he calls them children. Now, Jesus has called his disciples a a lot of things, disciples, in some instances he calls them brothers, but right now he chooses the word brothers, brothers, Children. Children. And he's called them brothers and and a lot of things, but he says children. Now, what's important about this is go back to that image that we just established. Um, You know the kid who's done something wrong? And they know it. And they're caught. Now, what do you do? If you're a parent, what do you do when you see them overwhelmed with guilt and shame? What do you want them to do? Now, uh, if you're a good parent and... It's the best day of your parenting. It's you at your best. Um, You see your kid overwhelmed with grief and shame. What, What do you do? Come to me. Like, let me hold. It's okay. I love you. It's okay. Run to me. Don't even walk. Just run, and I'll catch you, and I'll hold you. I'll embrace you. Run to me. So the man on the shore says, children, try casting your nets out on the other side. So this line that that Peter realizes it's the Lord and it says he puts on his outer garment Um, if you're working hard into the night you would have you wouldn't have been like naked or anything but you would have been kind of wearing minimal garments so you could work harder but for Jewish sensibilities you're not going to go back to the shore and be among kind of the public dressed in in that kind of manner so it's really interesting it's it's, it's weird the way the story records it because he's like it's the Lord I got to make myself respectable but then immediately, as he's making himself respectable, what, what does he do? He just throws himself into the water. He threw himself is the language. He throws himself in the water, and what does he do? He swims to his Lord. He begins swimming. See, there's always, there's always two roads. When you fail at what you promise to do, you can run to the Lord or you can run away from him. One is a path that leads to life, and one is a path that leads to death. And for whatever reason, sometimes you think God's going to be mad. If I come to him, he doesn't want me. But how does Jesus reach out to his disciples, the ones who betrayed him, the ones who handed him over, the ones who broke their promises? Children, I'm here. And any good parent knows that all you want is for them to run to you and to hold them and and embrace them. Now, uh, Peter throws himself in the water, which is really interesting because remember how I said a while ago uh, the character of Peter is parallel to the character of Jonah. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, he's thrown into the water. Why? Because he's running away from God. And now Peter, the son of Jonah, throws himself into the water and is going to run to God to swim to him in a literal sense. He's going to swim to him. And Jesus is waiting on the shore. Children, now, put the pieces together. The night is ending. The sun is about to rise. You're at the sea. There's a man calling you from the shore. okay, now connect these images. Do you see what's going on? Where was Peter first called? Where was the first scene? At the sea with Jesus on the shore saying, put down your nets, come and follow me. What is Jesus standing next to? This is an interesting detail, right? Jesus is standing next to the charcoal fire. The charcoal fire is the location of Peter's betrayal. So what are we seeing here? We are seeing the moment of Peter's calling and the moment of his great betrayal compressed into one new image. This is the place where you were called. This is the place of your failure. But rather than leave this image as a place of failure and betrayal, Christ is transforming this scene from one of betrayal and failure to one of restoration. And you have to picture this. Jesus, who has been crucified And betrayed by these very men is standing. Children, come. And there on the shore of the sea with the rising of the sun is the son of God calling you home and he's making you breakfast. He's making them breakfast. It's a way of saying, my offer still stands. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. I'm big enough to take your faults, your failures, your sins, all the messy stuff, all the junk, all that stuff in your life, just come, come, come towards me. And you can always go in the direction of the Lord or you can go in the opposite direction. But he always wants you to come to him. Because if you can be Peter and swear allegiance to him and moments later deny him before he is crucified, and still be drawn back in, then Christ can do that for anybody. And so this is Jesus' way of saying the offer still stands. And the offer still stands for any single person in this room. We are called to take the mess, the faults, the failures, the sin, and take it to him. Like children who trust in a father who's for them and not against them. At the rising of the sun on the sea of Galilee, at the place of first calling and the place of rejection, stands the Son of God, and he's making you breakfast. Come home. Come home. And so his offer to Peter still stands, and that offer stands to every single one of us. And it's true in a big sense when you first trust in Jesus, but it's also true every day of your life. Every single day you have a choice. Do I go towards him with all my mess or do I go the opposite way? And I'm telling you, one path leads to life and one path leads to death. And you may be saying, look, no, no, I, I've crossed a line. I've crossed a line that won't be forgiven. I just have to keep this secret. I have to bury it deep down. No, no, I've crossed too many lines. I've done it too many times. I've made too many promises you aren't understanding the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, if you keep that inside of you, it will kill you in more ways than one. That sin, that failure, that shame will eat you alive. Slowly but surely. But Christ says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So whatever image of God you may have in your head, however angry you think he is with you, however deserving of judgment you might be, which you probably are, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God stands as a faithful father saying, run to me, jump out of that boat, swim to him as fast as you can. He's making you breakfast. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's true the first time you put your trust in him, and it's true every day. But you have to learn to daily confess your sins, be honest with where you're at, and trust him with what you bring. And so for some of you, um, you might need to take some first steps of confession. And that could look differently for different people. Um, If you're in a small group, that may mean you know confessing some things in your life. Uh, Maybe you're not in a small group. Maybe it's time to get into one and build some trust and some relationships to do so. Maybe you have some friends that you trust that you can talk to. If you don't have those, uh, you can meet with any of the pastors we'd love to talk to you. But you have to get it out. There's a path that leads to death. Christ doesn't want you on that. You have to take it to him. You get it out and then you feel his loving embrace. I forgive you, my child. I forgive you. Christ goes to the cross to forgive you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So, many different people in this room, people struggling with certain things, maybe some of you think you crossed a line or too many lines, take the right next step. And the right next step is towards the Lord, not away from him. And so we're going to take communion. And this may be, the first right step for you in this moment. Let's stand. So you may come to communion and be like, no, I can't take this. Um, I have too much. I'm not deserving. I'm unworthy. I've crossed a line. Peter looked Jesus in the eyes and betrayed him. But his master still reached down his hand and pulled him out from the waters. Peter cries out, you have little faith. I'm not done with you yet. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed by all of us, he took bread. And he said, this is my body. It's given to you. Jesus does this of his own will. It wasn't something he had to do. He sees you, he knows you, he knows whatever you got going on in your life right now, and he says, this is my body, it's given to you. Remember what I've done for you. Child, come home. So let's take and remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. And the apostle says that as you take this, you are actually declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so as we take, we are proclaiming, in this action, we are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're saying we wanna be faithful. Now interesting, after Peter's great betrayal, he's restored on the seas of Galilee. And for the rest of his life, he would live faithfully before his Lord. He didn't do it perfectly, I'm sure he messed up a lot. But he would live faithfully and he would ultimately stay true to his promise, even if I have to die. And he lays down his life and he's killed for his faith in Jesus. And so, what Christ does is he doesn't leave us alone, he gives us his spirit. And his spirit empowers us to be faithful. And it empowered Peter to be faithful unto death. And so, Lord, as your children and your followers, we proclaim your death and resurrection. Help us to be faithful and to the very end. And so, Father, we now turn to you and we'll close in a song of worship. And you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of all honor and praise. I pray that every single person in this room, no matter where they're at, where they have heavy guilt or hardly any, that we would all just daily take small steps, big steps, whatever it may be, to go towards you, that our direction would be right, that we would be on the road to life and not the road to death. Empower us through your spirit. You have been faithful. Help us to remain faithful to you.